Hope you brought your Bible with you this morning and they are eager to take it and study it with us and I encourage you then, if that be the case, to turn to the 15th Psalm. To the 15th Psalm is where we're going to spend our time this morning. Delighted that you're here. Make your plans to be back with us this evening at 5.30. Michael will be preaching then. Begin what he has put together as a home Bible study series, but he's going to present it for us. And I've seen the first part of that, and it'll be good, so come back and be a part of that study tonight. Let's read Psalm 15, only five verses found in this psalm, and yet full of information. The text says, Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle, who may dwell in your holy hill, He who walks uprightly and works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart, who does not backbite with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor does he take up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but he honors those who fear the Lord. He who swears to his own hurt and does not change, He who does not put out his money to usury, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. And that is the entire psalm. Psalm 15 is thought to be in contrast to Psalm 14. Psalm 14 you recognize as the psalm that says, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. The psalm describes how the fool conducts himself. That he does things that are abominable, he does things that are wicked, and seemingly the psalm is saying that it's not that he says there's no God, therefore he lives wicked, but because he lives wicked, he has said there is no God. Psalm 14 talks about the fool. Psalm 15 talks about the upright. They're different people. Psalm 14 talks about the typical ungodly person. Psalm 15 talks about the typical man of God. Which psalm describes you? Well, by your very presence this morning, your interest in spiritual things, hopefully Psalm 15 describes you and not Psalm 14. Loophole suggests perhaps Psalm 15 was directed against hypocrites. That rather than being a hypocrite, which may be included in Psalm 14, then be this upright person of Psalm 15. And perhaps he's right. Irvin Jensen calls this psalm the guest of God. I like that phrase. That Psalm 15 is talking about one who is the guest of God who dwells with God, who has fellowship with God. Debbie Graham Scroggies calls that God's guest. Very similar phrase. H.C. Leupold says that Psalm 15 is the marks of a true worshiper. All of those indeed are correct. What is the occasion of the psalm? Quite often in studying the psalms, when we get to the psalms in our Bible studies On Wednesday evenings, we'll raise the question at times, what was the occasion of this particular psalm or that particular psalm? And with many of them, we know of no occasion. 
And the truth of the matter is, we don't really fully know the occasion of this. Most seem to think that it was the moving of the ark in 2 Samuel chapter 6, moving it back to Jerusalem. It had been gone for a number of years. I'm not going to go back and trace that reference, but the celebration and the rejoicing of bringing the ark back to Zion may be the occasion, and that's all I can say about it, it may be the occasion. Loophole says that concept is admissible, but cannot be proven, and he's absolutely correct about that. That may be the occasion. That there seems to be an occasion of rejoicing, and there is an equation of, of raising the question, who now will have fellowship with God? Who will dwell in his temple? Who will dwell in his tabernacle? Who will be with God? And then the answer is given. In the psalm, all are invited to be a guest of God. As we make application of the psalm, that includes you, that includes me. We are invited to be a guest of God. You stop and think about the honor of being a guest of God. If the governor extended a personal invitation to you to come and be a guest at his mansion, and you get to have dinner with the with the governor and talk and converse with the governor and become friends with the governor, what an honor that would be. And here is the God of heaven inviting us to be his guest. This psalm shows us the way to have fellowship with God. How can I have fellowship with God? How can I be in a relationship with God? And furthermore, it shows us the way to heaven. There are three sections of this psalm, and these are the three sections. There is a question, there is an answer, and there is a conclusion. The question is raised at verse 1 in two parts. Then there are multiple answers given, <clears throat> depending on how you divide that. Some think they are listed as ten positive things and ten negative things. You don't do these things, and you do these things, then you can be the guest of God. Then verse 5b <clears throat> The latter part, the very last phrase, serves as the conclusion, or as Loophole calls it, Ascragi, I think, calls it the assurance that's given. So here we have the question, the answer, and the assurance, or the conclusion that is driven. So with that in mind, let's talk about the guest of God. We're starting on the assumption that you, by your very presence here, want to be a guest of God. You would like to be invited to have fellowship with God. You would like to have relationship with God. You would like to dwell and sojourn with God. Well, who is the guest of God? That's what this psalm is about. Let's start with the question, verse 1. Go back to your text, put a marker there. We're going to be spending our time at the 15th psalm. <clears throat> Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle? Who may dwell in your holy hill. Well, let's start with the very first word. He starts by addressing this to the Lord. This question is asked of Jehovah, the only one that has the real answer. The question is not directed to the rabbi. It is not even directed to the psalmist. But it is directed to Jehovah, Lord. We direct you. We ask of you. You're the one that has the answer. You're the only one that has the answer of who shall dwell or abide in your tabernacle and who shall dwell in your holy hill. Now those are not the same question. 
Those are similar questions, but there are different imports to those two parts of the question. The psalmist is not asking, I want to literally dwell inside. I want to go to the tabernacle, wherever the tabernacle is at this point. I want to go to the tabernacle and I want to live in the tabernacle. The psalmist is not allowed to do that. He is not asking at verse 1, who shall dwell in your holy hill? I want to go to Zion and I want to dwell in the temple now. That's not what he's asking. But he's using the idea of the tabernacle and the temple or Mount Zion as dwelling places with God. Now let's talk about the phrase that is, phrases that are used. Here's the first question. And that is, who may abide in your tabernacle? You may note a footnote at verse 1 that the word abide simply means to sojourn. Here is the idea of a tabernacle being a tent. It's a temporary structure. And the idea of abiding or sojourner as per the footnote in the New King James means a temporary dweller. And so here is an aspect of focusing on the concept of the tabernacle and that is it's a tent, it's a sojourning, a temporary passing through as the tabernacle was a temporary fixture, a a temporary structure. But let's make some application to the present day. That served as a type of the church according to the book of Hebrews. And so the question is, as we make application, who can have fellowship with God? Who can commune with God? Who can have a relationship with God and be among those and in the group of those who have fellowship with God? Now we'll come back to a practical sense of wording that in just a moment. Now let's look at the second part of verse 1, the other question, which really comes together as one question, but it has two parts. So the second part of the question is, who may dwell in your holy hill? Who may dwell in your holy hill? The holy hill would refer to Zion or Jerusalem. The idea of dwelling is a more permanent abiding, where one was the sojourning passing through temporary But here is a dwelling, a more permanent abiding. And so the heaven of Zion, as per the book of Hebrews, is a type of heaven itself. And so now the question and application for us, who shall inhabit and inherit the heavenly Jerusalem? Who can be a guest of God? So let's put this in practical terms. There's two things in this question. Who may abide in your tabernacle and who may dwell in your holy hill? The psalmist is asking who may have fellowship with God. The question for us is who will be in the church of the Lord and who will go to heaven in the after while? If you're not a Christian, the question is what do I do and how do I live to be a child of God and live in harmony with His will, be pleasing to Him, and then what kind of life do I live to go to heaven in the after while? Now let's go back and read the question again in that light. Look back at verse 1. Lord, who shall abide or sojourn in your tabernacle? And who is it, Lord, that may dwell permanently in the Zion or in your holy hill? Then the psalmist speaks as speaking for the Lord. The answer that's given beginning at verse 2 through verse 5a. So now we know the question. Let's look at the answer in verses 2 through 5. There are a number of phrases. And let's take each one of those and see if that fits me, see if that fits you and how we live so that we might be a guest of God. Now let's see what the text says. Beginning at verse 2, he who walks uprightly. 
He who walks uprightly. Now notice what he says. He uses the idea of walking. We'll focus on that more in just a moment. But what that means is that his daily life is in harmony with God. In 1 Peter chapter 1, put a finger or marker there at Psalms. And let's go over to the book of 1 Peter. Chapter 1 verse 15 sets the theme for the entire book of 1 Peter which has to do with living holy in all of your conduct. So notice what he says, As he who called you is holy, be holy in all of your conduct. That's your daily life. Not just in worship, not just in your home, but in every facet of your daily life. Be holy in all of your conduct, he says. That's the theme of the book of First Peter. So when he says in the psalm, the one who has abides with God or dwells with God or is the guest of God, the one who walks uprightly, it's one whose daily life is in harmony with the will of God. But furthermore, if he walks uprightly, he is one who is just and fair with his fellow man. More evidence given at verse 4 in a moment. But he walks fair in dealing with fellow man. He walks justly in feel, dealing with fellow man. If he walks uprightly, there is no hypocrisy and there is no guile. In other words, he's not putting on a front or a veneer of serving God, but inwardly he does not. He doesn't serve God for the benefit of family, and as soon as family is out of the way, then they quit serving the Lord. There is no hypocrisy, there is no guile. He sets God and service to God is first and foremost in his life. Now let's go back to 1 Peter chapter 3. That we should sanctify the Lord God in our hearts. The word sanctify means to set apart. And so we're setting God apart first and foremost in every aspect of our life. So he sets God in service to him first. He does that because he realizes, let's go back to verse 1, he's merely a sojourner. I'm passing through this life. I'm a sojourner in the tabernacle. This is not my permanent residence. I'm looking to go to that holy hill. I'm looking to go to Mount Zion. I'm looking to go to that heavenly Jerusalem. And so he walks uprightly. That's not the only answer the psalmist gives. He said he works, verse 2, righteousness. He works righteousness. Now what does that mean? Well, the psalmist said in Psalm 119 and verse 172, All thy commandments are righteousness. So the revelation of God is referred to as the righteousness of God. And all the commandments are righteousness. So when he walks righteous or works righteousness, he's working the commandments of God. <clears throat> in other words, he must do that in order to be accepted of God. Do you remember Peter preaching to the household of Cornelius said that in every nation he that fears God and works righteousness is accepted of him. In other words, Cornelius, if you have the fear of God in your heart, and then you obey God, work righteousness, God will accept you. That's the person who is a guest of God. Now let's turn over to 1 John in chapter 2. John says in 1 John chapter 2 and in verse 29, we have to work righteousness in order to be born of God. In other words, to become a Christian, like Acts 10 showed. Chapter 2 verse 29 says... Verse 29 says, if you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness, same as working righteousness, is born of him. So who is a guest of God? 
It is one who walks uprightly, works righteousness, and speaks the truth in his heart. Verse 2. He speaks the truth in his heart. In other words, he's honest and he tells the truth. He doesn't deceive. Either by word or by actions or by silence. Sometimes we think that, I I don't want to deceive, I would never tell a lie, but I want my actions to leave an impression that I know is a false impression. I want to deceive, but I don't want to tell a lie, but I do want to deceive. This person is upright, he speaks the truth in his heart. He doesn't deceive by words, by actions, or by silence. Why? Because he understands the destiny of the liar. Revelation 21 and verse 8, all liars will have their part in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone. That person is not a guest of God. He's not going to dwell in the holy Jerusalem, Mount Zion, the holy hill. You see, he keeps his heart pure. For out of it are the issues of life, Proverbs 4 and in verse 23. But let's go back to this phrase, he speaks the truth in his heart. Which suggests that he's honest not only with others, but he's honest with himself. That is, he tries to tell the truth to himself. He tries to be open and honest with himself rather than deceiving self as the Bible often warns of the possibility. Now I want you to notice three things we've just noticed. So far we've seen his walk and his work and his word. He walks uprightly. That's his manner of life. His work is righteousness, doing the commandments of God. And his word is that it's true. But we're not through. Let's go to verse 3 now. More about his word, he does not backbite with his tongue. The person, here's one of the negative things. So far, we've seen positive things. He walks uprightly, he works righteousness, and he speaks truth. But now here's something he doesn't do on the negative side. What does he not do? He does not backbite with his tongue. He does not backbite with his tongue. In other words, he doesn't cause wounds with his tongue. Let's go to a familiar text. James chapter 3. James warns us about, or James chapter 1 to start with. And then we'll go to chapter 3. James 1 talks about the danger of the tongue. And he says at verse 26, If anyone among you thinks he is religious... I view myself as being in a, having a relationship with God. I view myself as having fellowship with God. That's the idea of being religious. Now verse 26 says, And does not bridle his tongue, he deceives his own heart, and this one's religion is vain. That he doesn't control his tongue. He bite backs, uh, backbites with his tongue. Let's go to chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. Let not many of you become teachers, knowing you shall receive the greater condemnation or the greater judgment. Speaking of teaching and speaking, we bear responsibility. But let's go a little bit further and notice at verse 5. He said, even so the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. You see how a great forest, a little fire kindles. Now notice also verse 6. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. Now that's enough to establish our point, And that is that the tongue, though it seems so small in its effect, it can be very destructive. The psalmist says the guest of God doesn't cause wounds with his tongue. He doesn't go about slandering others. Let's go to the book of Proverbs, just a book over from where we are. And let's go to the 11th division and in verse 9. 
And let's notice some Psalms that warn, or the Proverbs rather, that warn about misusing the tongue and slandering and destroying the character and the reputation of another. Notice verse 9, the hypocrite with his mouth destroys his neighbor. You see, you can with your tongue, with what you say about your tongue, with your tongue, with what you say about others, destroy their character and destroy their reputation. Look at verse 13, same chapter. The pallbearer reveals secrets. In other words, he reveals things that shouldn't be revealed. No one needs to know. Let's go over to the 12th chapter, same book, chapter 12, and in verse 18, the one who speaks like the piercing, there is one who speaks like the piercing of a sword. That is, you can speak in a way that your words are like taking a sword and piercing it through. It hurts just as bad and does just as much damage. The one who backbites is a coward. In this text, you might slander and slander to their face, but this one mentions a backbiter who is a coward who lacks the courage to speak to their face, but they talk behind their back. The guest of God does not do that. Now notice verse 3, here's another negative, nor does evil to his neighbor. Nor does he do evil to his neighbor. That means he practices the golden rule. He treats others the way he wants to be treated. He doesn't do evil to one and expects everybody to treat him fair. But he doesn't do evil to his neighbor. He does good even to those who may wrong him. Let's go to Romans 12 just quickly. And what's the point in Romans 12? It deals with relationships. And beginning at verse 17, Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for the good in the sight of all men. Now notice... Verse 20, if your enemy hungers, you feed him. If he thirsts, you give him drink. What's the point? You're good even to those that are not good to you. And so he doesn't do evil to his neighbor. Let's continue with verse 3. Nor does he take up reproach against his friend. Similar to what we've already seen about backbiting, but here he's focusing again on slander. He doesn't slander, he doesn't gossip. But I want to look at this phrase, take up. He doesn't take up a reproach. It's the idea of taking up as an instrument of destruction before him. He doesn't take up reproach. The idea of stripping or making bare. He doesn't, in other words, take up an instrument of destruction and lay bare or strip one of their character and their reputation. Do you ever do that? Do, do you talk about others to the point you've destroyed their reputation among brethren or in the community or wherever it may be? You destroy their character. At least you hadn't really destroyed their character, but the, the reputation of their character you have destroyed. In other words, you've taken up a reproach like an instrument and you've laid it bare and you've removed it. The one who is the guest of God does not take up a reproach against his friend. Here's another characteristic, verse 4 now. In whose eyes a vile person is despised, but he honors those who fear God. Now this one deals with both a negative and a positive concept. That is, he despises those the person who is vile, and he honors those who fear God. Now what does that mean? That means he hates wickedness. 
He has no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. Ephesians 5 and verse 11. He doesn't take pleasure, Romans 1 verse 32, in those who practice ungodliness. He comes out from among the world and tries to be separate. 2 Corinthians 6, 14 through verse 17. But, notice the contrast now. He loves those that do right. Now notice the wording here at verse 4. That in whose eyes a vile person is despised. I don't think that means he hates people. He's going to learn to hate their sin. It's the idea. Because we're to love all men and we're to have love even for our enemies, the text says in Matthew 5 and other texts. But the idea is that he doesn't have respect for a person who is vile. When they recognize someone is not living in harmony with the will of God, they're ungodly, they have no Bible principle, they have no Bible character, they're dishonest, they're opposed to God, they don't lift that kind of person up in esteem. Well, who do they hold in esteem and they revere? Verse 4, he honors those who fear God. That means he does not respect the person based upon race, upon wealth, upon education and favor, but he has a deep and abiding respect for those who fear God. Now let's stop and think about that for a moment. Do, do, do you know of some people who claim to be Christians that when there is someone who deeply fears God, they don't really revere that as much as they may someone's education or someone's wealth or this close friendship even though they have no respect for God. Do you have deep and abiding respect for those who have deep fear for God? The guest of God is one who doesn't revere the person who is against God, but they revere the person who is in favor with God. They have a deep and an abiding respect. Now look verse 4. The list continues. Just five verses. And look at how many characteristics we have so far. Verse 4. He swears to his own hurt and does not change. He swears to his own hurt. And he does not change. In other words he's a person of his word. He can be counted on. He's reliable. He keeps his word. But let's go to James 5 and then we make some application of that. James chapter 5 and in verse 12, But above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no, no. What's his point? You should be the kind of person, I don't think he's talking about a court circumstance, where you're asked to take an oath. That's not what it's under consideration. But it shouldn't be that when you make a statement to someone and, test, and you're saying it's true, that you have to be asked that you're going to swear that indeed you're telling the truth. If you say yes, that should mean yes. And if you say no, that should mean no. And if you say you will, you will. And if you say you want, you want. If you say you're going to pay, you're going to pay. If you say you're not, you're not. Be a person of your word. There are Christians who make promises they never fulfill. Having dealt with a number of people in the building industry, there's hardly anybody in the building industry that's a person of their word. They'll say, I'll be there Monday, and they don't come that Monday or the next or the next. Then they make a promise they're coming back the next week, and they never show up. They say, well, we'll come the next week, and they don't show up. They're not people of their word. 
Some of those are Christians. They don't do what they say. When you say yes, that should mean yes. When you say no, that should mean no. And when you say you will, you will. If you offered to pay, you should pay. Whatever the deal is, be a person of your word. The guest of God keeps his word. Now notice this. He swears to his own hurt and he does not change. What does that mean? Even when it's to his own detriment. In other words, I made the promise I was going to do this. And now that's not going to be convenient for me. And I'm going to do what I said. I offered to pay. And now I'm going to pay. I offered to go and I'm going to go. I said I would be there. I'm going to be there. Even if it's to my detriment. The reason he honors those who fear God is this shows that he fears God indeed himself. But let us notice it in verse 5. There's another characteristic. He does not put out his hand to usury, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. What's the idea of usury? It's an unreasonable amount of interest. It is not forbidding if it's a business deal where you loan money to a fellow believer in God, a fellow Christian, and you loan money to them and there's a deal, they're going to pay interest. The idea is taking advantage of others. Someone when they're down and you're, t- you're, you're sticking it to them and gouging them with an, un- an exorbitant amount of interest because there is no other choice for them and you've got them over a barrel. In other words, he's a person of principle. He doesn't put out his money to usury. Nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. In other words, his soul is not for sale. He's not going to sell out because it's convenient, because he makes money. His soul isn't for sale is the idea. Now, that's the description that's given. Now, let's go back and get verses 2 to 5 before we go to the next section. What, what have I just seen? Let's back up and just take a look. What have I just seen in the list? When the question was, who shall dwell in his tabernacle? Who will dwell in his holy hill? Who's going to be the guest of God? It's the person who walks uprightly, works righteousness, speaks the truth in his heart, doesn't backbite with his tongue. He doesn't do evil toward his neighbor, doesn't take up a reproach against his friend. And a vile person is despised. One who fears God is revered and honored. Swears to his own hurt and he doesn't change. And he doesn't put out his hand to usury, nor does he take a bribe. That's the kind of person that is the guest of God. Now let's come to the last phrase in our text. The conclusion or the assurance. And the phrase that's found at the end of the psalm, at the end of verse 5, he who does these things shall never be moved. And that's his conclusion. That is his assurance. In other words, the person who abides about those characteristics in verse 2 through 5a is well grounded and firmly fixed as Zion is itself. The tabernacle wasn't firmly fixed. It wasn't permanent. And it would be moved. But not Zion. Not Zion. And so he's firmly fixed. He's well grounded. In other words, he's anchored. Hebrews 6 and verse 19. He is said to abide forever. 1 John 2 and 17. 
But I want us to spend just a moment at the parallel that could be found. He'll never fall. Let's go to 2 Peter chapter 1 and see the same principle. And then we'll bring our study to a close. Turn to 2 Peter chapter 1. You know this text well. The Christian graces, add your faith, virtue to virtue, knowledge, you know the text. Where you take your faith that you have, whatever degree it is, and you add to it and you build on it like building blocks. You add to your faith virtue, and to that virtue you add knowledge. And to knowledge you add self-control and perseverance and godliness and on down the line. You should have underlined it, verse 5, giving all diligence, doing the best you can. Verse 10, be even more diligent, doing the best you can, growing and building those building blocks. But here's the point I want you to see at verse 10. Be even more diligent to make your calling and election sure, for if you do these things, you will never stumble. But wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I thought as a child of God, there is a possibility of falling and stumbling, and there is. You see, I thought as a child of God, I I could lose my faith. I could lose my salvation. I thought that could happen. I thought you could fall from grace. You can. But here's the key. If I'm being diligent, doing the best I can, adding to my faith, virtue to virtue, knowledge, knowledge, temperance, and I'm growing and developing under that circumstance, you will never fall. Let's go further. Verse 11. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom. Now that's what the psalmist is saying. What the psalmist is saying, who can dwell in his holy in the tabernacle and who will dwell in the holy hill? Who will be the guest of God in a relationship here on earth and ultimately go to heaven with God? And then he gives us the answer. The one who walks uprightly. One who works righteousness. One who doesn't, who speaks the truth in his heart. Who doesn't take a bribe. The one who fears God. Who doesn't take advantage of others. Etc., etc., And the person then who does that, he said he shall never be moved. But I thought you could. Yeah, you can be moved. But it's when you quit doing those things. As long as I'm diligent doing the best I can do, then I shall never be moved. That's the assurance and the conclusion the psalmist drives. The guest of God. The question, the answer, and the conclusion. That's Psalm 15. Are you guests of God? Do you have a relationship with God? Do you have fellowship with God? Have you been in fellowship with God? Have you fallen out of fellowship with God? The person who is a guest of God is one who works righteousness. Are you working righteousness? Have you been obedient to the gospel? This morning, would you come believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Would you repent of your sins, acknowledge your faith, and be buried in the waters of baptism? For the remission of sin. If you're subject in any way, would you come while together we stand and sing?